0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Broadcast, our regular pensions podcast looking at topical pensions issues. Um, I'm on my own today so not only is Rachel gone but um, I haven't even got my doppelganger named David along with me who was with us last time but I'm not going to be just a monologue. I am joined by Kim Muddamer who is a professional support lawyer from Shoesmiths. Hi Kim.
1: Hi Dave.
0: Hi. Nice to see you, how are you?
1: I'm very well thank you, how are you?
0: I'm good. I'm very good. So today we're going to talk about a couple of ombudsman cases. So before you get too excited, everybody, these are ombudsman cases that we think are well worth talking about. Um, the first one, which I'll we'll pass over to Kim in a second, is is I think probably the most juiciest one ever. I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> Kim's nodding. You can't see. But Kim's nodding, so she's agreeing. I agree.
1: It's quite a juicy one, yeah.
0: So, and, and there's lots of learnings we can pull out and um, there's a second case we'll spend a few moments looking at as well. Um, so I think without too much further ado, um, Kim, if I can just pass to you to summarise the case of, is it Ms. E or Ms. E? Uh,
1: Ms. E, let's go e. with. Okay. I will. Yeah, so um, both the cases that we're going to talk about today are death benefit award cases, but they really centre around conflicts of interest. So um, the first... For anybody who's read the determination in relation to, to Ms E, um, they'll immediately have seen that it's in relation to a small self-administered scheme. So I'll, uh, off the bat, I'm just going to say that even though it's a SAS, as we refer to them, it, those schemes are subject to much of the same rules as other occupational pension schemes. So the determination is relevant to in a wider context, so we can look to it for guidance. And that's, know that's why we can talk about it today to the extent that we can look to any pensions ombudsman's determination for guidance because they are as we know not binding on anybody but the parties to that determination including the ombudsman himself which means the ombudsman can look at two very similar cases and come up with two completely different answers which is exactly what has happened in the two cases that we're going to talk about today but as you'll as we hopefully will um show that they are at quite opposite ends of uh, the scale for extreme um, situations. So we'll start first with the case of Ms. E, which is perhaps the more um, dramatic of the two cases that we're going to look at today.
0: Yeah, that's better than um, GC.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> I do see like <GC>, good. <laughs> so Ms., Ms. E was the brother, uh, sorry, the sister of a chap called Mr. D. Mr. D... Um, was a member and trustee of a pension scheme that was established by him his long-term friend uh, Mr A and Mr A's wife Mrs A. Mr A ran the business that Mr D worked for they all got on as far as we can tell jolly nice um Sadly, in September 2017, Mr D was diagnosed with cancer and he was told a couple of months later that that diagnosis was terminal. So he started to get his affairs in order. He used um, a friend to help with that. Um, I think his name was. I'm not sure. Uh, Mr F. We'll call him Mr F because I can't remember his surname. Um, he enlisted the help of Mr F uh, to get his affairs in order, and that included Um, completing a nomination form for his benefits under the SAS and when he wrote to the administrator um, to request um, the relevant information they told him that he had a nomination form in place from 2015 in which he had nominated um, his sister Ms E uh, as one beneficiary and Mr A who was his friend and co-trustee of the SAS as another beneficiary. They they were both set to get 50% of the Mr. D's fund value in the event of his death. Uh, Mr. D wrote back and said, I don't have any recollection of completing this nomination form and it's not what I'd like to do. Um, I would like to, I, I want £25,000 of the of my benefit to be paid to my estate and I want the rest to go to my sister. So he signed and sent back his um, new nomination form, setting out his wishes. He also made a will that reflected that. It said he'd made separate provision for his um, funds um signed that and then uh, again very sadly he died a couple of weeks later so the administrator who was incidentally also um an independent trustee of the scheme i'm going to refer to that organisation solely for the time being as the administrator as um, we'll come on to see that they really didn't do an awful lot in their capacity as an independent trustee so administrators they are for now they let Mr A and Mrs A as the other trustees know Mr Um, D's fund value and that he had submitted a, a nomination form that said he wanted part of the benefit to go to his estate part of the benefit to go to his sister and from there all hell broke loose, as far as I can tell from this determination. I laugh, but, you know, these are um, we have to make light of, of difficult situations, don't we? But pensions are a really, really emotive topic. We rely on them as individuals to provide provide us as individuals with sufficient income in retirement, and we rely on them to provide for our loved ones when we die. So um, I don't want to be too glib about uh, the facts of this case. It's obviously it was a really, really difficult situation for everyone to be in. Um, but th- th- there was a a significant dispute after that point, let's say. So Mr. and Mrs. A has, uh, insisted that the the later nomination that Mr. D had made in 2017 shouldn't stand because at the time he'd been very ill, terminally ill, um, and he'd been um, medicated for that illness. And so they said he didn't have the, the capacity to, to, to make that new nomination. Um, so, in their capacity, well, in Mr. A's capacity as a disappointed beneficiary, remember he had been nominated as a beneficiary of Mr. D's fund in an earlier nomination form. He instructed solicitors um, to to dispute the the later nomination. Um, And everything sort of ground to a halt in terms of a decision making process. So, although the complaint was on paper made in his capacity as a disappointed beneficiary, they, as the trustees, were controlling the decision making process. And they, Mr. and Mrs. A, were blocking. the administrator, who, as I said, was also an independent trustee, from making any kind of payment until they had reached a decision over who the correct beneficiary should be. And it is in the trustee's discretion to decide who the benefit should be paid to. But where they got stuck was that um they just kept asking for copies of Mr. D's medical records and refusing to pay the benefit until they'd seen them. And this scenario carried on for months and months and months. They got to a point where they offered Ms E, so Mr D's sister, who was complaining that um, she should have been entitled to the benefit in the 2017 nomination, the one that Mr D had made when he was poorly, um, they essentially offered her a settlement whereby they said, we'll pay you what will we'll pay the estate £25,000 per the nomination form. So they they thought it should stand in that respect but not in the amount that was supposed to be paid to Ms E. So they said they would pay her an amount that was significantly less than the balance of Mr D's fund. And the two amounts together, what they paid to the estate, what they said they would pay to the estate, sorry, and what they said they would pay to Ms E, basically amounted to the amount of cash that they had in the bank account at that time. The scheme had other assets, but they weren't liquid assets. They were invested in properties. They would have had to sell those properties in order to pay Ms E any more again the dispute rumbled on and it approached the two year mark um the two year anniversary of mr d's death so uh, just to put that into context if a, if a death benefit is paid after that two year anniversary point then the recipient is the, the benefit is taxed in the hands of the recipient so ms e was um, keen to get things resolved before that point um so for that reason she agreed to accept the offer that was made by mr and mrs a just to avoid the tax consequences on the basis that the rest of her dispute still stood and you know she expected to receive further payment in the future so um, and they'd reached that point that's that point by the time they were approaching the two-year anniversary instead of dealing with the complaint though Mr and Mrs A suddenly um Made the decision that, in order to avoid the tax consequences, there were consequences they were going to decide who the benefit should be paid to. And because Ms E had already agreed to part of it um, in in the settlement offer they made, they decided that uh, 25 grand should be paid to her estate, 161 grand should be paid to Ms E, which is what they had put in the previous offer, and the balance, which was about 115 grand, should be paid to Mr A. And that's how we end up. Well, with the, the complaint was already with the ombudsman, but and and there are many, many details that we don't have time to go into today. Mm-hmm. But that's how we end up in front of the ombudsman. Um, and I would say the ombudsman took one look at this and went, no, 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 no. But, you know, there was a lot of work that went on in the background. It went through an adjudicator um, before. There was lots of paperwork passed backwards and forwards. Um, but ultimately, what the trist- what the ombudsman said was, A, we cannot deal with this on paper because I'm I'm not convinced that I can get the full story based on what I've seen in writing. So he decided there had to be an oral hearing, which is incredibly rare in the Pensions Ombudsman. Mostly these cases are dealt with on paper. He will only hold an oral hearing if he thinks um, he can't determine what's gone on based on the the evidence available because it's not clear enough or he thinks the parties are going to be dishonest. So. I'll leave it to the listeners to decide which one of those uh, suspicions the ombudsman had in this case, but he, Dave's, Dave's got his hand up. He's asking me a question. (laughs) I was just
0: asking, I was just thinking though. So is that because when you, when you have an oral hearing, you're under oath effectively, so it'd be perjury or is it, is that nonsense?
1: No, it's more because um, the ombudsman can ask questions where he thinks it's not clear. Mm -hmm. So you're not, there's no, sort of perjury element to it uh, but i'm there's, there's a a case that the, the the previous ombudsman would always um bring up when he went went to um seminars and and such like where he asked a trustee to show him where on their internal website um something was located to prove that they'd looked at that procedure or process of whatever whatever it was prove to the ombudsman that he that that trustee had done exactly what he said he'd done and in the room on the day he did not know where it was on the internet so it's things like that that Mm -hmm. the ombudsman is really trying to weed out things that you can really only see or you know get to the bottom of when you're in the room with someone yeah okay um so they're in the they they had a hearing on this case um which as i say is, is quite unusual and the biggest the, the most obvious issue with this entire case is the huge glaring conflict of interest
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> between um Mr and Mrs A's personal interests and their fiduciary duties as trustees so mm. they were even on, in the hearing on the day they absolutely refused to concede that there was a conflict in this case, and they had been told by the adjudicator who dealt with the the complaint when it was first being dealt with, were told by the Ombudsman, it was very obvious that there was a conflict of interest in this case, but they would not acknowledge it. And as is obvious from um, the facts of the case, they didn't do anything to manage it whatsoever. Um, So a a very obvious breach of their duties as trustees, which they were rightly criticised for by the Ombudsman, There was, as well as Mr and Mrs A, who were the member trustees of the SAS, there was an independent trustee. It was the organisation that also acted as the administrator. So as the administrator, that organisation was a bit of a post box, really. All of this correspondence that was going, you know, flying between solicitors and the trustees and the member's sister, they had sight of all of that correspondence and they were on notice of a very, very obvious conflict. In their capacity as independent trustee, they had chosen to take an impartial role because they didn't want they didn't want to have a conflict with either of the parties, with with the trustees or with mm. the potential beneficiary, Ms, Ms. E. So that's really the opposite of what they should have been doing mm. as an independent <laughs> trustee. Yeah, uh, they should have been they should have you know very very early on in this process they should have said to the the member trustees, Mr. and Mrs. A, look, you're conflicted. You shouldn't be making this decision. You need to farm it out to somebody else. Uh, but they didn't do that. They they had a very passive or you know a best reactive, as the as the ombudsman says in in the determination role. Um, so it, it it had also breached its it, you know it's really its core duty as an independent trustee by doing that and not by by not intervening by not uh, telling the other trustees that they were conflicted by not advising them to. Seek independent legal advice by not taking legal advice of their own. They really didn't fulfil their duties as an independent trustee. Um so the Ombudsman did another thing that it very, very rarely does. Um, ordinarily where it finds that trustees have not made a proper decision in a death benefit case like this. The Ombudsman says, Go back and do it again. Go back and consider all the relevant factors, don't take account of any irrelevant factors and make your decision again. But in this case, there was such Obvious problems with the processes that had been adopted, that the Ombudsman said the the only way we're going to get this sorted is for me to make a determination myself. I'm going to say that the benefit should be awarded to Ms. E. So 25 grand to the estate per the 2017 nomination and the balance to Ms. E in its entirety plus interest plus trustees, you need to cover the cost of any tax that she incurs as a result of those additional monies being paid late. So um, Ms E's complaint was upheld in full. The The other difficulty for the trustees, uh, th- for both the member trustees and the independent trustee in this case, was it is is that they all had, um, by the time they got to uh, the Ombudsman's hearing, they'd appointed legal advisors, so there's, there was counsels, fees, an awful lot of costs racked up um, during the course of this um, complaint, because the Ombudsman had found that um, the trustees had acted in bad faith, and for Mr and Mrs A, um, knowingly, uh, in conflict of interest, and dishonestly, essentially, all of them were prevented from relying on any kind of protection contained in the scheme's rules or in trust law. So scheme rules will often contain an ind- indemnification provision or an exoneration clause that says if trustees are, you know, they run into difficulties if they have to deal with proceedings like this in their role of trustee as trustee when dealing with scheme business, they can be they can take the funds out of the scheme to deal with the costs of de- of of, um, of those proceedings. But they were prevented from doing so because of the way that they acted. Similarly, there's provisions under the Trustee Act 1925 that provides um, other protections. But because of the conduct in the in this case, all of the trustees were prevented from relying on those. So they're in a really sticky situation.
0: Would that have been the same? So I know some trustees will have um, indemnity insurance as well. Would the... I, I mean, all insurance policies, I'm sure, will be different. But would they be able to use that to meet those costs, or would that have some kind of? If you've acted in bad faith, then you you can't claim.
1: I would imagine there would be something in their insurance mm. policy that said something similar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as you say, it will be it it, it will depend on the the wording mm. of their um, insurance. But in a pensions context, insurance is um, an insurance that is very broad would be very expensive. Um, And so uh, based on other things that they scrimped and saved on, let's say in this case, I would be doubtful that they would have sufficient, you know, sufficient cover in place because I mean, they didn't take legal advice even in their capacity as trustees of the scheme, but they did take legal advice in their capacity as disappointed beneficiaries of the member. So the priorities were perhaps a little bit skewed. Um, so, uh, I mean, we'll never know, but I'd be interested to see what that insurance policy said, if there was
0: <laughs> one, in fact. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an astonishing case. I mean, the, the numbers, you know, we're talking around about, the fund was around £300,000, I think. Yeah. So, you know, so there's a great, there's a lot, that's, that's going to, you know, there's a decent amount of money, 8% interest from November 2019 on the, I think you said roughly £115,000 that was mm. that was due. So it's a, it's a significant sum that Ms. E is going to, is going to get, and it, I mean, is this is this unique? I, I have heard it. This described as being a unique case for the ombudsman to say, "I'm going to t- tell you what to do here."
1: Yeah, it's really rare, very, very rare for the ombudsman to step into the shoes of trustees and make decisions on their behalf, and um, only in cases where it's very obvious that the the person complaining isn't going to get a resolution otherwise, and that was very obviously the case here. Mm. It is a very extreme case um and very rare for the ombudsman to take the steps that it took what makes it perhaps more um unique is the fact that it had an independent trustee
0: mm.
1: appointed um and as i mentioned earlier the nature of a sas is slightly different they are you know they're much smaller schemes that they're tiny um and they are often ran only by the members who act as the trustees, and you know, they aren't pensions professionals. So, you do see um, sometimes unusual factual scenarios arising in the context mm. of a SAS. Uh, but this scheme had an independent trustee appointed to it, so it had somebody who should have known the requirements. It should have known that there was a conflict there. It should have known that the trustees didn't have appropriate procedures in place and it should have told them um, that that was the case. So it is quite unique in that sense. And it, it's rare that we see something go quite so um, awry, let's say.
0: Yeah. I mean, for, for the nerds, I mean, it, the ombudsman did say along the lines of, you know, you're in breach of section 249A of the pension scheme, well, the Pensions Act 2004- for schemes to have effective system of governance and internal controls these kind of things the trustees i know trustees you know all the trustees listen to this will probably not understand you know appreciate the the section of the act but will appreciate they need to have an effective system of governance and these kind of things do often get a little bit overlooked probably not get the love they need you know from in pension scheme meetings you know actuarial bits an investment bits at to the top, admin bits in the middle, and the governance bits, I think it just goes to show how important those bits are, even where there's professional people involved, even when there's schemes that we're involved with, you know, it's, that isn't just a tick box, that isn't just something to, to nod and go, yeah, I'm sure we do that, you need to be sure you do that, you need to understand that you have a conflicts of interest policy, and that you follow it, and you understand it, and you declare interests, and all these kind of things, it's not just a, a nod. No,
1: absolutely, and that's, exactly what the changes that we've got coming down the tracks are designed to tackle you know Mm -hmm. governance is a huge um topic at the moment it is hopefully Mm -hmm. creeping up trustee agendas as we get ever closer fingers crossed to the general code being um in place and that will set out requirements for trustees to have effective systems of governance um in place and the own risk assessment those requirements are set out in law but we're waiting for the detail in the general code um but you're right they do you know trustee meeting agendas are very busy there's a lot to talk about um and you know traditionally trustee boards only meet as a group four times a year i think more um businesses dealt with between meetings these days as a result Mm -hmm. of, you know, we've all changed the way we work. Trustee meetings aren't necessarily held in one room four times a year anymore. You know, we use, you and I are speaking on Teams today and trustee Mm -hmm. boards have been, you know, very good at adopting that technology. So, you know, things are dealt with on a more regular basis now. So hopefully less governance issues slip Mm -hmm. through the tracks. But also, you know, you and I are used to dealing with particular type of client you know we don't we're not dealing day to day with very very small schemes like the SAS that was in this case or you know smaller schemes that don't have the same budget for advice uh, and assistance where these issues can easily arise and it's really Mm -hmm. really important that trustees are aware of what they need to do you know the, the knowledge requirements around pensions are significant and they're mm. difficult and it it does take some time to get your head around them and as this you know the case of Ms E really nicely demonstrates it doesn't matter how small your scheme is you're a trustee there are things that you are expected to do and know mm. um, and it's really important so I think it's a really good point.
0: Mm. Yeah no I mean we do do with small schemes I think it's you know if, if I was a listener and I was thinking well I'm a member nominated trustee or I'm a member of the, you know, I work for the employer or I've been a member of the scheme. You guys necessarily need a unique position, but you are in that position where these things can happen. And it's just, I think the important thing is, and you alluded to earlier, it's knowing when to take advice. It's knowing when to ask the question. I'm not sure if there's an issue here. And, you know, if you're not sure, then potentially there could be, even if the perception of a conflict, is to get some advice and, and just talk it through. Uh, most conflicts of interest policy will say, if you think you're conflicted, talk to the secretary of the scheme or talk to the chair um, and just talk it through. There's no harm done in taking a five-minute conversation to say, am I conflicted? And I have it quite often, the trustees will come to me and say, am I conflicted? And we'll have a chat. And generally, they're not. Generally, they're just overthinking or just a bit concerned, but I'd much rather have that conversation than have a conflicted decision made. And I know this is extreme, but then have a case like, this uh, case of Ms E where it all goes horribly wrong um oh, well
1: exactly did you that, that five minute talk gone. on go on no as you can say the that five minute conversation is you know far more preferable to opening yourself up to a complaint even if the complaint isn't upheld in the end you still have to go through the process of dealing with it and it's you know it's time it's money and it's dragging you know the people involved in the complaint through something that's really difficult these mm. are death benefit cases a lot of the time and yeah you know, they're already grieving. They don't want to have to deal with this. So
0: Mm. you've got another case which just highlights. I think that's a good bring that one in.
1: So it's a nice comparison. So uh, this is the case of Mr. Y. There's two Mr. Ys in this. So I'm going to call one Mr. Y senior and one Mr. Y junior, but it might get a bit confusing. So it's a similar scenario um, to the the previous case, although um, not quite so um, dramatic, let's say. So Mr. Y Senior was by the it was the sole member of, again, a very small scheme. He was also a trustee and his partner, Miss O, was the second trustee of the scheme. Um, When Mr. Y died, uh, he had an expression of wish form in place that nominated uh, Miss O. And it also had he also had a will in place that indicated that Miss O was his. Um, preferred beneficiary. Mr Y senior had been married before. He had um, been divorced. He'd been through divorce proceedings and reached a financial settlement with his former wife in respect of his family um, and had that they had a pension sharing order in place. Um, so when uh, Mr Y died, Miss Ms. O Was she was taking advice from something called the Scheme Practitioner. So a Scheme Practitioner isn't the same as a Scheme Administrator. So in the first case that we spoke about, they had a Scheme Administrator. An Administrator has specific duties in law in relation to a pension scheme. A Scheme Practitioner is slightly different. They sort of just do the legwork on behalf of the people who administer the scheme. So they don't have the same legal obligations. And so they, they don't they're not exposed to the same liabilities. So there was a scheme practitioner in place and um, Miss O was working with the scheme practitioner after the death of Mr Y and they identified the fact that even there was a conflict of interest between Miss O's personal interest because she was potential beneficiary of Mr Y because she was nominated in his nomination form and her fiduciary duty as a trustee of the scheme so just because she was nominated didn't mean she would automatically get the death benefit benefits are paid at the discretion of the trustee they don't have to follow a nomination form so if mr y had other potential beneficiaries it could have been paid to them but because she was the nominated beneficiary there was a conflict of interest so they identified that nice and early in the process so they appointed a second trustee uh, to the scheme That person wasn't an independent professional trustee. It was just a lay person who was known to both Mr. Y and Miss O. But he was a second trustee appointed to the board to take away that element of conflict. And various payments were made to Miss O before the decision was made. And those payments were raised by Mr. Y Jr., who was Mr. Y Sr.'s son. Um, But those payments went through a process that was considered by the trustee's both of the trustees were in place by that time and made under trustee resolution. So it was a process in place for those payments to be made. The trustees then looked at all the potential beneficiaries of Mr. Y and they ultimately decided that the whole benefit should be paid to Miss O. Mr. Y Jr. wasn't happy with that decision. He felt that as a potential beneficiary of his father, he should have been awarded a part at least of um, the death benefit payment. So he complained to the pensions ombudsman um, on the basis that he, he said that Miss O was conflicted. Um, the trustees hadn't given him um, proper consideration as a potential beneficiary um, and that the payments that had been made to Miss O had been made in breach of trustee duties. They shouldn't have been made. So you can see that the, the facts aren't the same and they're not quite as um, extensive as the facts in the first case that we talk about, but talked about. But there are obvious similarities in this case, uh, in the case of Mr. Y. So the parties went to the Ombudsman. Mr. Y requested an oral hearing. He said, you know, I think this is terrible, and um, I don't think it can be dealt with on paper. I think we need to have an oral hearing to deal with this. And the ombudsman looked at all of the evidence in front of him and said, no, actually, I think there's really clear evidence here. We don't need an oral hearing. We can do this on paper. So that's how the matter proceeded. And it, it Having looked at all the evidence in front of him, the ombudsman agreed that there was a conflict of interest. Miss O had a conflict of interest, uh, but was seemingly satisfied by the fact that they'd appointed another trustee and they'd put some procedures in place and followed those procedures when they were reaching their decision. The evidence showed that they had considered Mr. Y Jr. as a potential beneficiary, although they hadn't got any um, actual written documentary evidence to show that and um, which is often a case in these sorts of decisions for trustees they don't write down there the things that they consider when they come to their decision so sometimes that can be pro- problematic so it was when we're advising trustees we you know try and encourage them to keep a record of the things the factors that they considered so that they ever end up in front of the ombudsman on these things they can say look here this is what we considered when we we're making this decision Um, But they told the the trustees, you know, told the ombudsman the factors that they had considered when they were making the decision. And one of those factors was the fact that uh, Mr. Y Senior had come to a financial settlement with his former wife when they were divorcing and they were under the mistaken belief that, that settlement had in some way compromised Mr. Y Jr.'s claim to his father's pension benefit in the event of his death. And the Ombudsman said, No, that's not quite right. Um, that settlement doesn't preclude, it doesn't stop him from being a potential beneficiary. He was a potential beneficiary of his father. And so you didn't give him adequate consideration. So, under all normal circumstances, this is an example of one of, one of those cases where the ombuds would, Ombudsman would say, Go back and Look at it again. Now that I've told you there's some relevant stuff that you haven't considered, go back to the drawing board, consider all of the factors afresh and come up with a new decision. But because there was clear evidence in this case and the Ombudsman had looked at it all as part of this complaint, he said he had absolutely no doubt that if he told the trustees to do that, they'd go back and reach the same decision. So he said it wasn't appropriate in that case. That the original decision could stand, but they had to pay a distress and inconvenience award to Mr. Y Jr. for not having given him adequate consideration. So, another case of a, a decision being challenged on the basis of conflict, but in this case, the trustees had taken steps, albeit really quite minimal steps, to manage mm. the conflict that existed, but those steps were enough to satisfy the ombudsman that a proper procedure had been followed so a really really different outcome for those trustees on
0: the face of it, it feels like a surprising outcome just as just I mean I might not be as familiar with the case as you are but just the way you were phrasing it when David they had put weight on the view that he'd been compensated Mr Y Jr by the settlement with Mr Y Jr's mother but that was wrong so it makes me think Why were they not asked just to consider it again? If you come to the same decision, then that maybe would have been the end of it. But it seemed odd not to kick it back to them just to consider that factual error.
1: Yeah, I think it was because it wasn't the only thing that they considered. So trustees Mm. are entitled to attach whatever weight they want to attach Mm. to um, any particular factor. But the other factors in this case were, you know, the Miss O and Mr. Y were, partners. Uh, they were, I believe, cohabiting. She had been nominated on his expression of wish form. She was named in his will as a preferred beneficiary. There were, there were other factors mm. that uh, were considered. So on balance, the ombudsman said, even if you go back and look at this one element again, I'm confident that you're going to reach the same decision based on the evidence that he see. seen. So obviously, we don't know everything that the ombudsman saw. One of the frustrating things about determinations is that you only really see half the picture um mm. but based on what he had seen he was satisfied that the decision wouldn't have changed
0: yeah so the learning there is even though it was a minimal bit of action the trustee did well didn't want trustee at the time to, to get somebody else in that's seemingly enough you know, a relatively simple thing to do as well
1: yeah exactly i mean i'm sure in, in an ideal world we would want Our trustees to do more than the bare minimum. Yeah. But just that, the few steps that the trustees took in this case really saved them because Mm. um, even if they would have, even if Miss O could have taken the decision independently on her own without being biased in any way, which is would be near impossible, one would think, um, Mm. and they came to the same decision without the second trustee having been appointed. It wouldn't have mattered. They, they she would have been conflicted, and the ombudsman, I'm sure, would have taken a very, very different view of this complaint. So mm. um, you know, they really saved themselves by um taking those actions. and and you know, no trustees want to open themselves up to potential complaints based on, you know things that they could very easily have managed by taking mm. just a few steps,
0: yeah, yeah. okay. well we're we'll, we're running close to time. So I want. <laughs> I I have, in full disclosure, I have pre-prepped Kim for some of these, but I wanted just to just to consider just a few sort of common situations. Now I know probably the next word you're going to say out of your mouth the most will be, it depends, because pensions normally, in most pensions questions, normally get followed by someone breathing in like a builder and then saying it depends. And I think, you know, as long as you say that enough, we're happy. But I mean, doubly so
1: when that person's a lawyer, hey? Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: And I'm not trying to get some free legal advice out of you either (laughs) while you're here, because that's too cheeky, even for me. But I've just got four little scenarios that I'll just rehearse to you quite quickly, one at a time, and just get your initial take on, I know we pre-prepped it, but your initial take on whether you think there's a conflict or whether there's not, and maybe what what could be done. Go for it. Right. That's a long preamble. Right, So, so a trustee. It's dealing with um, a death case, or a deceased member, and and they they knew the member, they knew the family, um, and they're trying to determine whether there's a discretionary lump sum to be paid. Is that trustee conflicted?
1: Well, it depends. <laughs> 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 I mean, in seriousness, though, it does depend. Well, I know, because... I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the nature of pension schemes is that they, they are set up by employers for their employees. So often we mm-hmm. find that trustees um, have known members for yeah, sometimes 40 years, mm-hmm. depending on you know s- some industries. So Absolutely. there are many occasions where trustees will have known the member in question. The What's really important is probably that how well that member is known to the trustee. So if it's, you know, when you and I were talking earlier, we gave the example of if the member's spouse had turned up once to a, a, you know, a company family day, and the trustee met them once over a barbecue, there's probably no conflict of interest there. They don't have real personal um, knowledge of that family. But if the trustee had spent Every Saturday night for the last twenty years, down the pub with that member and his or her family, then that scenario is probably going to be a little bit different. And there is probably some useful information that that trustee can provide to um, the trustees. But ultimately, it strikes me as a scenario um, in which the the trustee who has you know very intimate knowledge of that family should recuse himself from that decision. Um, where there are other potential beneficiaries to avoid even if there is no actual conflict to avoid the appearance of a conflict um or, or at the very least the trustee trustees need to document how they've otherwise managed that that conflict scenario
0: okay good it depends Love it. um <laughs> uh, the, the next one uh, so a trustee is also a pensioner and they're considering what to do around discretionary pension increases whether they can award them
1: uh, well luckily um our legislation deals with that exact point so um there's a an inherent conflict um between uh, tri- trustees who are members of the scheme essentially you know they are, um they have an interest as a member they have an interest as a trustee so the legislation allows um, Trustees who are also members of a scheme to participate in decisions that would affect the membership of the scheme as a whole. So um, there's an acknowledged conflict there, but it's one that's allowed for by the law.
0: I've had it in cases, I think, where there's enough trustees, sometimes just trustees just feel happier not being involved and just saying, Look, I I know there probably isn't a legal conflict, but I'm just going to, you know, there's a trustee board of eight or six or Mm -hmm. however many. You can say, Look, you don't, there's still a quorum to make a decision. I will just again recuse myself just from this just to make myself feel better that it's all above board but if you're saying it's the the law is there as well that's 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 the right position to be but if a
1: trustee feels for for whatever reason they might be personally conflicted in something they're doing exactly the right thing by Mm. recusing themselves from something it might be that it's completely unnecessary and advisors we might be able to you know as you said earlier you often get um, trustees who think they might be conflicted but they're not so we can steer them and say actually you've got nothing to worry about here you're not conflicted um, but if the you know if the schemes provisions allow for decisions to be made without one trustee who feels like they can't make that decision then you know, that's
0: that's permitted yeah perfect okay two to go um, th- this one is a little bit different in that the, it's sort of more the other side so a trustee perhaps works in the finance department or a particular department that sees budget setting. They're not a decision maker, but um, they might know things that could be relevant to the trustee board. Um, How they are they conflicted? How could how should they deal with that situation?
1: So in this scenario, the there's not necessarily an immediate conflict of interest, but the person in question has conflicting duties, so they've got duties to their employer. And they've got duties as a trustee. So even if there isn't an immediate conflict, there is a potential conflict in the future. And it happens quite often when we have, you know, finance directors, for instance, acting as trustees of the scheme. So the best possible way to deal with that scenario is to have a process in place for dealing with that sort of conflict before it arises. So if you have an agreed process that says if we're talking about X, Y, Z topic, then ABC trustees will not be involved in those discussions because there's a potential conflict of interest. So, but you know, that's an ideal world. We'd like to those processes to be in place um, beforehand. But there are occasions where it might crop up in the midst
0: Mm. of
1: a meeting. And in that scenario, that trustee would have to hold their hands up and say, I can't participate in that in this discussion because it, it you know it potentially gives rise to a conflict. And that takes us back to the point that came out of the cases that we spoke about earlier. You need to know that the potential conflict. You don't know what you don't know, and so as a trustee, it's really important to have that knowledge, know when something might be a, con- a conflict.
0: Mm. And it's, yeah, this is I just wanted to tease that as well. There's not conflicts of interest sometimes are a bit easier to spot, and conflicts of duty can just be something, you know, it's in your contract, and you have a you know a duty to the employer to do X, but also there's the trust trust law saying you have a duty, fiduciary duty to the members and the beneficiaries. And you can, you know, people talk about putting their different hats on. Well, mm-hmm. sometimes you can't, you can't have two hats. You can only have, in some, situ- in some situations, you can only have one hat. So, like, you know, so trustees do often say, "Oh, i will put my trustee hat on," or i will put my employer hat on." I really rather you just threw one of those hats away and didn't have two hats. You should really only have one hat where you can. And if you're feeling like you need to wear two hats, then that might be a, a signal that there's an issue here that we need to talk about.
1: Well, indeed, and that's, you know, that it brings—it's the age-old question of whether people who have, who, who acting company roles that could be conflicted like Mm. for instance a finance director should be trustees Mm. in the first place because of the inherent risk of conflict you know like you say that hat sort of becomes one yeah (laughs) even we don't necessarily want it to
0: yeah yeah okay the final one um i don't know whether it's tongue-in-cheek but it's slightly Um, cheeky but um, what if a trustee comes up and suggests they want a rule change to allow for a redefinition spouse perhaps they're not married and they've got a a partner or perhaps they want to um, remove a reduction for having a younger spouse or something like that is the trustee able to propose that and be involved in that decision making process?
1: Well it's an interesting one isn't it because in this scenario I'm going to go ahead and assume that the member that suggests the change will somehow benefit from the change um so there's a conflict of interest there but it is a if the change were to be made it is a change that would affect all members equally or at least all members that have a spouse for instance equally so it's a bit of a sort of borderline was one isn't it Mm. the trustee is of course you know any trustee can suggest a change to the rules if they think a change is necessary uh but I think the, the, that members, that trustees, fellow trustees would need to question the members motivation. So maybe there are some difficult questions to ask there. But if it's something that is legitimately in the interests of the scheme, then the trustees can take independent advice on that and uh, on whether it should be, it is something that the, sh- the scheme should adopt. If you've what can quite often happen in those scenarios that though is that the trustee who suggested the change can be quite vocal and have quite extreme views on whether or, or not it should be adopted and that can be you know that could be very unhelpful for a trustee board mm. so in that scenario it would be appropriate for that trustee to be excluded from the decision making pr- process yes. Um, and that can be a difficult process to manage in and of itself. But, you know, mm-hmm. there might be a legitimate benefit to the scheme of introducing whatever suggestion the trustee has.
0: Yeah. I mean, in that case, I mean, it was it's a little bit flippant. But, you know, in that case, you know, redefining spouse to allow civil partners and um, or or common law, inverted commas partners, you know, people who are living as if they're married. Well, that's probably quite. Something that's quite progressive and something that perhaps schemes should consider. So it's not always, you know, I'm not, I wasn't trying to be too.
1: Oh, no, too... <laughs> no, I, no. I absolutely take the point. No, I, and I'm no, that...
0: Being a bit sensitive, I think. I was thinking, I don't want to be too critical of people that might want to propose quite reasonable and good ideas to, yeah, to improve and, the benefits, you know, just they happen to benefit from themselves.
1: Exactly. And if the scheme funding position can support it, then, yeah. you know, sometimes, you know, there might be a personal motivation behind something, but it to the benefit of the masses, yeah. as long as the it all comes down to whatever you're talking about it comes down to the trustees following a proper procedure mm. no matter what the you know the topic is having the right controls in pre- in place following the right procedure governance 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 it all comes down to that doesn't it
0: yeah fantastic i think we might have to leave it there because we we've felt so much time on those ringing words in our ears of governance <laughs> Governance, governance, banging the drum for governance, not to be, not to be, uh, not to be ignored. Definitely very important. Kim, I, I, I've I've kind of pulled the shutters down. Is there anything else you wanted to to, to say before I uh, I say goodbye?
1: No, I, I think I've said quite enough, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Oh, thank you, Kim. Okay, thanks everybody. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you again next time on the broadcast.